Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with David Baker at his home in Corvallis. It is August 14, 2017. And David, we'll start you off with a nice easy question. Why wine? Uh, let's see. I, I um, started to become interested in wine. Uh, I grew up in the city in Chicago and um, my mother was from Germany so we always had kind of wine at the table and earlier access to wine I guess than um, than most kids growing up you know it was sort of a fixture there so and had some relatives in Germany who were in the wine industry um, a little bit but I, I wasn't really that interested in it until I moved out of the city and, and we moved to the country in Missouri of all places and, and at the same time that we did that um, I traveled to France with my wife for the first time, and we stopped uh, in um, the town of Bone, which is the heart of Burgundy, maybe a, one of the great wine capitals of the world, not knowing it at the time. <laughs> and we took a tour and went out into a vineyard there. Um, so uh, it just was really a, a captivating experience seeing those old vines. I didn't know anything about them. I've learned a lot since. But um, when I came back to Missouri, I planted um, about a quarter acre of grapes and made plans to plant more and uh, started just getting interested in the process of growing grapes uh, and I just took online courses on viticulture and um, toured the local wineries in Missouri um, that were sprouting up at the time and uh, uh, ended up working uh, in a commercial vineyard uh, as volunteer laborer for a couple of seasons and, and uh, so just found it more and more fascinating ever since. So then when you got to Oregon, did you continue to grow grapes here? No, I was, I kind of had thought in my mind um, when I moved, I moved here for job reasons. I worked at universities and still work at Oregon State University. And, um, but I think this being a wine region was a, a reason, reason that I, we chose here. I kind of chose on behalf of our family <laughs> because of the fishing and the and the wine the you know very noted wine reading region so i always thought i would get involved um with wine somehow and this seemed like a good place to do that so definitely being in areas that grow grapes factored into into our choice to move to oregon and one reason that we'll stay here and, and like it but as far as getting in involved with the industry i always figured I would get more involved somehow uh, and didn't really know how and and it was through kind of the work that I do writing and and filmmaking that I found a way in and um, I've really enjoyed that aspect of it especially um, the first film American Wine Story is about all the sacrifices that people make to get into the wine business and it was sort of a a, a dose of reality of what it takes and the <laughs> commitment and um, so it, it was really daunting to learn what those folks went through so I find myself more as an admirer of people who do that um, because you know they make a lot of sacrifices and, and uh, mortgage homes and cash in life savings and to start and to get into the wine industry it's it's not an easy path so as an observer and sort of documenter of of the wine industry, it feels like a good role. 
So let's talk about American Wine Story a little bit. So what was the impetus to starting that project? Uh, so um, I'd always been involved in, in writing projects um, and scripting uh, news uh, and video and that sort of thing. Um, and I'd actually um, sold a screenplay option and uh, had been involved a little bit in um, filmmaking and always as a writer. And as a writer, you don't have any control over the product or the process. Um, so you get called in, and then the, the, the film that was in development at the time, it ended up folding, the company folded, and there was the writer's strike, which kind of put a damper on the industry. So um, I wanted to make a film that, you know, get into filmmaking where I could control it a little bit more as a director and producer. So I used the money from that, um, that sale of that script to buy a camera and um, made some short films and things on the side and American Wine Story kind of grew out of that. Uh, at the same time, True and Pence, who worked on the film as well, and I were um, touring wineries and, and hanging out with um, some people locally here, friends of ours who make wine, and every single one of them had a story of like, I used to do this. And I think that was sort of a common thread in the types of wineries and the types of winemakers that we liked uh, or that we gravitated towards that were accessible to us is that, and especially here in Oregon, it's like they all used to do something else. And so we thought that would be a great thread for the um, first story. And uh, so we married that with the fact that, you know, had a camera and decided to start making a film about that theme of what people used to do, what they gave up and where they wound up. And, and also I think Oregon more than uh, a, a lot of other regions that might, or some of the other regions that are more established is, is has more of that pioneering aspect or had at that time, um, you know, this sort of wild west feel to it. So it's, it's a great home for that story. And then we tried to expand it across the country. So what was the response as you were trying to tell that story locally and then also across the country? What was the response from people in the industry? Well, I think that's one reason that you tell stories about winemakers, I think, is you've probably encountered, is that if you start talking with these folks, or if you go to a winery and you actually talk with the people that, that make the wine, and in the smaller uh, producers, that's usually the case. It's usually somebody in the family or somebody directly connected to the process that is involved. Um, there are such genuine people. A, a lot of times, you know, when we do an interview and tell people what we want to do, first of all, they'd be a little baffled of why somebody would be interested, and then they'd be very busy. Uh, but then once you'd arrive there and spend a couple of days with them, um, you know, usually by the end of the first day, you're, they're giving you a place to stay, or, um, you know, if, if they are really busy, you know, you could tell the interview went really well because they'd, be, they'd say, hold on a second, and then they'd go in the back and you hear clink, 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 and they might come out with a bottle or two of, of some of their more special wines that they make, you know, um, and they're very genuine people. So I think their response was, um, if they find that you're really interested in what they're doing and you automatically have a connection and, and I think that's one reason they get into winemaking as much as anything is to connect with people. Wine's kind of a form of communication, and um, if you're receptive to that, then um, then they can read that. And, and and I think that's why so many people have so many great experiences visiting wineries and touring wine regions and things like that because they sense that connection. So 
I remember talking with you while you were working on the film, and you, as I recall, were still trying to figure out how, how to tie the full narrative together. So how did you kind of come to your final cut? How did you kind of decide the final order of things? Yeah, that was a really challenging uh, process. Because um, we, we had uh, about, um, uh, we talked to about 60, 70 different people all across the industry, all around the country. A, a, lot, a large number of them in Oregon, and, uh, but California to Virginia too. And um, we had chapters. We organized everything into chapters, like here's the epiphany bottle. And here is um, you know, the, sort of the challenges. And here are the outliers, people growing grapes in regions where they were told they shouldn't. Oregon used to be one of those regions. You know? um, uh, the first winemakers that came up here, people thought they were crazy. They weren't really supported or, uh, you know, by the traditional structures. So, um, so we organized all those chapters and we had this great sort of flood of information. But I think a story needs sort of a narrative arc and it needs, um, you know, in a documentary, uh, we'll call it like the train or the spine of the story. Uh, and, and we just didn't have that. Um, so throughout, and I think probably around the time that we were in the archives, um, we had heard of the story of the Brooks Winery and of Jimmy Brooks, who was a Linfield College alum. Um, and, you know, we'd, everywhere we went, we would fish for another story. Say, what are the great wine stories that we should cover? Who are the people we should talk to? And everybody said, oh, you, I'm sure you've talked to Brooks. You know, that's this great story. This kind of young, eccentric um, winemaker came in in the Oregon wine industry after he'd passed away, helped rescue the, the winery for his son. And we heard that so many times that we assumed it had been told in a film or something like that. So we didn't, we didn't really go near it. But then we, uh, at, at, towards the end, when we had this collection of material, we thought, well, that would be a great anchor story. It's got a great arc. Um, so uh, uh, I reached out to Janie Brooks and... Um, she was a little guarded at first, I think, but then went down to California and met with her and spent some time with her family. And, and then, then we knew that that was the story. So we pieced that into the narrative and we tied the chapters of Jimmy's and Janie's lives to the, these chapters that we'd already laid out. And, and it worked really well. It gave um, the audience sort of a, a, a couple of main characters to root for throughout the documentary. And that was sort of the missing piece. So what would you hope audiences got out of American Wine Story? Um, you know, I think uh, it's, as, it's a, certainly a wine story and focuses on the wine industry and there's some genuine qualities in that. But I think you can extrapolate that to a, a lot of the sort of this really positive entrepreneurial American spirit, this pioneering kind of a spirit of starting over people, you know, um, sort of this whole that stems from a nation of kind of immigrants reinventing themselves and coming here and, and starting new lives and starting with not a lot and building something up. So I think that's a big part of it too. Um, and I, when we were out doing festivals and actually watching the film with um, audiences, it was always rewarding when somebody would come up um, and say, you know, I don't, I'm not even interested in wine, but I like the film. Um, you know, or, or I don't drink, but I, I really enjoyed the film and, and, and they've talked about that. You know, this is really about entrepreneurship. It's about sort of an American story. So 
um, and I think that that is one thing that was rewarding is that it transcends the wine geeks and the wine lovers, you know, and it reached a more general audience. But um, the other thing too is, uh, you know, a lot of people came up to me after the film, after screenings, and they're like, oh, where should I buy a vineyard? I, I want to start a vineyard now. <laughs> and, and even though we don't really advocate for that, and in a film try and almost scare people away from it a little bit, uh, I think people are still inspired by the characters in the film, the, the real life stories that they, they want to do this too. So you can see that spark of, you know, people who have been thinking about this and it's been in their mind and then they see the film and then they want to do that. So that's really rewarding too. And um, I think it's not a film that's necessarily for everyone, um, but I think people in that spectrum, when they connect with it, they, re they really enjoy it. And, it. and that's been rewarding to see. I I'm surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised that you know people are still watching it. It's still out there and um, you know, I hear of people doing screenings and um, ordering DVDs and things like that so that it's still out there reaching, you know, it feels like it has a little bit of life behind it, so. What was the most surprising thing you learned in, in making the documentary or, or surprising aspect of the industry? You know, I think what really hit home um, and the thing that you never think about when you look at the wine industry is that the hardest part, um, is selling the wine and and that was a theme um and even the way you know it's this wonderfully crafted product and it you have to plant grapes and you have to take exquisite care of them and then you have to really be careful about this process and keep everything clean to successfully make uh, a bottle of good wine and then you know to make you know sort of a wine that comes from a certain place, you know, vin vineyard designate kind of wine or, or higher quality wine where there's lots of, um, you know, fruit sorting happening and stuff like that. It's all hand labor. So it's really hard to do. And everybody says that's the easy part. You know, they all say that the hard part is selling the wine. So that's sort of a sobering thing. It's kind of like um, you don't open a restaurant if you like cooking. <laughs> you know, you open a restaurant if you like spreadsheets and <laughs> and uh, late nights and things like that and, and managing people. Um, and a winery, you have to, that selling part is the hard part and that, that really hit home and it was a, a surprise. Uh, that's nothing that anybody who gets into wine loves to do. So, unless like I think Janie Brooks, who's like a natural, <laughs> Uh, comes from the world of, of uh, you know, where sales skills, she just has a gift for that. So I think she's like perfect in the role of, of the head of Brooks Winery. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious, in your words, like what is it that makes wine special? Why, why write about it? Why make films about it? Is there a certain aspect of it to you that makes it special? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the most fascinating thing about wine is is how much is contained in a, in a certain bottle. So you have a whole year worth of weather that's reflected in this bottle of wine. So it's it is you know a, a document. It's like a record or a time capsule of that particular year. And then you have um, millions of years of years of of geology and and the shaping of of geography that is reflected in that same bottle. So, uh, and then you have, you know, if it's in Oregon, maybe it's 40 years. If it's in Burgundy, it's 2,000 years of human history 
reflected in that bottle. And then at the very top level, you have the personality uh, and the beliefs and the convictions of the person who made it in there. So you have all these different levels in, you know, that just kind of happen to be encapsulated in this, in this product. And it, and other winemakers have mentioned this to me too, is it's like one of the few products in the world. It's an, it's an agricultural product and it's an industrial product. So it's manufactured, it's grown mm -hmm. and, um, and it's sold um, usually in many cases by the same person who you go into a tasting room and, and, and a lot of times you'll, or you make an appointment with a winemaker uh, or owner of a small winery and, and that's the person who's been involved at every stage of it too. So how many products in the world, you know, most farmers, they grow some things, maybe you can go to the farmer's market and, and experience that a little bit, but you know, this is a product that encapsulates, you know, so many, all the aspects of industry. So agriculture, sourcing the, you know, the raw materials and, manufacturing and selling all in in a lot of cases one person and even like burgundy the old, you know one of the oldest wine regions and you know these legendary people you make an appointment with the person with the owner and and you can do that and probably couldn't afford a lot of their wines but you can still meet the person who makes the wine and whose family has done it for 14 generations and uh, that's pretty cool so talk about your your most recent project that just came out, your novel Vintage. Um, what, what were the influences in writing that book? Uh, I think that one, yeah, I, I went to school for, um, I was an English major and uh, went to school for writing. And um, so uh, that novel, kind of the notes of it started at this time when I was in Missouri, really fascinated with wine. So I started thinking of this character, this uh, um at that time, so, uh, and when I was finishing um, American Wine Story, uh, you know, when, when you're working on a film, it, a long piece like that, it feels like it's never gonna end, and you get to a point where you just want it to be over, and you kind of curse yourself for ever, ever starting it, and I was kind of at that point in American Wine Story, kind of fumbling around, and um, then I kind of dusted off this character and had been reworking it and working on a draft of um, uh, of that story and it was a good it was something that I could move forward when I was stuck on the film um, so yeah it, it, it just kind of happened to come out at, uh, shortly after the film too and I think having the film out there in the public space kind of helped interest publishers in it as well sure. so so I think it, it, it's sort of a, a good counterpoint to the um, to the film, so it, it allowed me to, you know, a lot that went into it was kind of the appreciation I gained for winemakers and the winemaking process um, from doing a lot of the interviews with chefs and winemakers and people for American Wine Story. What were some of the challenges you encountered writing about wine? Well, you know, there there is a, an entire library of people who do it a lot better. Um, you know, I, it, there's nothing that you can say about it because it's people just love it, and there's great people. You know, we have m many of those people here in Oregon and in the Northwest. You know, including Catherine Cole and you know people around the world like Hugh Johnson, and so you can't really write anything new. So, 
Um, so that was always the challenge, you know, it's like that's everything's been written about and everybody's so much more knowledgeable. So it was fun to invent a character who is an expert and put words in his mouth, you know, and that way if I got something wrong, it was like, well, that was intentional, you know, and sort of this comic, uh, this kind of a little bit of a unreliable narrator, you know, this kind of questionable, questionable protagonist. So I could blame any of my mistakes on, on him. Um, so, but yeah, trying to come up with something new, I think, and a new angle and a, and a fresh perspective on something that's been so scrutinized for so long is a, is a big challenge. But it's also a big enough subject that if you look hard enough, you, I think you can always find something, too. So is that something you plan to continue, the, the character or the type of story? Well, yeah, I, um, I, I thought I would move on to some other things, but... Um, Actually, I'm at work on a film now um, called The Three Days of Glory um, about the, this wine festival in France. Um, so I'm working with a, a wine importer in Portland who has spent a good portion of his life in France. Um, and uh, we kind of came up with this, this story. It's a really interesting time for Burgundy uh, because the weather is changing and uh, 2016 they had a... a 70 to 90 percent loss of their harvest so we thought that would be a good year to tell the story of the end of harvest celebration these three days of glory in a in a very difficult year so hopefully that'll kind of come out this winter um so i'm back at the point trying to make that into a, into a story so that that's and then i have another uh kind of novel that's um in the wine uh, space as well so i find myself continuing to work on stories and it, uh, it's a sequel to they include some of the characters from the first novel so not a, not really a sequel but a a novel that just kind of builds on that so you're finding lots of lots of inspiration in wine for lots of different projects yeah yeah and and the people too you know and having spending being able to go back to burgundy and dig deeper into it and sort of validate some of those early experiences I had where I knew there was something special there, but I didn't know what it was. And now I understand the the reasons behind it and the layers of it, and it's really fascinating. So, so with Three Days of Glory, what, are, the, are people coming to you with ideas now, or are these still mostly your ideas that are kind of germinating? Well, that, that was one where, um, you know, I received an email from... Um, uh, Scott Wright, who we interviewed for American Wine Story, and he had um, he had sold his winery and, and started uh, and built up uh, an import business, um, and uh, sort of was taking a different direction to his wine career. and And he said, you know, what would it take to make a film about Burgundy? and uh, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in that. So we started talking and discussing some of the aspects. And he'd actually been working on a book about Le Palais, which is one of the three days of glory, Le Palais de Merceau. And um, so it kind of grew out of that conversation. So yeah, people have, you know, seen, see, see the film and, and kind of come up. And I've had other people too, and other ideas and suggestions for films. And, um, and, and there's a lot out there, um, for sure. And so I, feel like I'll be involved with it probably for for quite some time you're actually part of the industry now <laughs> yeah to, to a certain extent you know it's great to be able to go and have conversations with people and I and feel comfortable with people um, 
you know, and and I get that quite a bit. Sometimes I'll go somewhere and just kind of hang out or try some wines and have some, you know, conversation. And and somebody has said, "Well, do you work in the industry?" And I don't. It's kind of peripheral, you know. I consider it like a peripheral way to be engaged with the industry, but but I, I feel definitely a connection to the industry for sure, and especially here in Oregon, having talked with a lot of the original, you know, sure. the founders of the industry and gotten to know them a little bit. So on that note, how have, how have your perceptions of the wine industry or of Oregon specifically wine industry changed? through your connections as you've worked with the industry? Yeah, I, you know, um, I arrived in Oregon about 10 years ago, so it's sort of this, this interesting, really interesting time for Oregon. It's sort of this changeover time. We have the second generation taking over a lot of these wineries or some of these wineries being handed over or, and then you've had a lot of interest, um, you know, investment by the Drom family and sort of Oregon coming of age. And then also now you have the, you know a lot of um, kind of corporate interests and large producers kind of buying up land and that sort of thing. So it's sort of a transitional time to to look at Oregon. Um, but I I still think there's a lot of that pioneering spirit, you know, and and, and um, startup mentality that makes it really exciting. Um, so, but I I do think, and maybe it's on my mind because of. Um, I, the same, I think the same thing is happening in Burgundy, where you've had this really bad, bad years of bad weather. Not that we've had, we've had pretty good weather here, but there, there, it's not been bad weather in terms of making wine, but just in delivering quantity. Mm -hmm. um, they still have always managed to make, you know, exceptional wines, but the prices of the wines are going up so high uh, that the prices of the vineyards are going up, and it's harder to continue these legacies. It's harder for small producers and, and the small family style winery to exist. And I think that's, um, they've had challenges in Burgundy um, they, and they passed rules to protect the smaller growers in the, in the 1930s when the kind of the corporate interests of the day uh, were looking to turn it into Bordeaux or a place like that um, where there are these big houses and it's managed to stay small producers, which I think makes it really unique. And I think Oregon has been unique because of the numbers of small producers. So I think we're at sort of a, a point too, where we need to see is the industry going to shift in Oregon towards big producers and, and big conglomerate type organizations, or are, is it still going to be a place that fosters these smaller entrepreneurial type growers who make really distinct, um, um, distinct wines. Um, so, so I think it's an, an interesting time and, and it's going to be sort of a, a challenge for the industry and, and you know, um, I think it's going to evolve and change. But being here while all of that's happening is pretty interesting. So what do you think will happen if you had to guess? Um, I don't know. I think, you know, if, if I look at places like um, you know, Sonoma and, you know, there are still small entrepreneurial people, but I think the, the family estates, um, oh, you know, it, it'll be a little bit harder to start that from scratch than it was in the past. I think, you know, a lot of the vineyards and vineyard lands are going to be, so I think a lot of the newer growers are going to be people who come in and start a label and make, negotiate to get the right fruit and that sort of thing. So I think in the 
first generation, everybody was planting their own vineyards and there was this sort of family legacy that's really tied directly. So I think that's going to shift a little bit, but I think it's going to, the, they're still going to foster, there are still going to be people coming to Oregon as it, it's a frontier, it's a growing wine region and it's a, um, its reputation is really increasing around the world too. You know, people in Europe and France talk about Oregon, they know about Oregon. Um, they don't buy wines from Oregon necessarily in, in Burgundy or it's harder to find them, but um, you know, we talk about it in American Wine Story that um, uh, Thomas Jefferson had dreamt of exporting wine to France from the New World, you know, 250 years ago or whatever. And um, I think we're now just at a point where American wines are winning respect in Burgundy and particularly wines from Oregon. So, um, you know, it's sort of like a fulfillment of his, his goal. So that, that, that's kind of a cool thing to be happening, you know, in, a, in the new world. You talked a couple times about uh, sort of the generation, and you said you moved here kind of as a generational shift. A lot of the pioneers are passing down. What, can you, what have you noticed about changes that have occurred because of that generational shift? Or what, what, what feels different now than did a decade ago? Um, yeah, and I should spend more time digging into um, Oregon wineries, but the, you know, the, the scale, the size of some of the plantings in the, in the vineyards and um, the um, style of, of the, some of the tasting rooms um, have changed and they're beautiful and they're amazing. But, but I think there's sort of a shift from, you know, somebody's farmhouse, uh, uh, you know, shed turned into a tasting room into something that's a lot more polished and a lot more spectacular. Um, so I'm seeing more and more of those, although there still are plenty of places where you can just kind of show up and you feel like you're on somebody's farm. But it definitely has felt over in the years that I've been coming here and, and traveling around that um, there are more options on the high end, you know, uh, of really uh, spectacular tasting rooms and that type of wine experience um, than there were in the past. There might have been two or three places that you'd recommend, but now I can think of, like, if somebody's looking for that type of experience, so there's just a number of places to go. But then there's other things happening, uh, urban, smaller urban winemakers and cool things happening as well um, to pro provide a counterpoint, which is part of that Oregon sort of spirit, I think. You know, I don't think it would ever become Napa Valley. I think Sonoma or someplace like that might be a, more of a similar mm -hmm. future for uh, Oregon. So is there, as either, this is either as a consumer or as a storyteller, is there a wine that like changed wine for you? Do you is there, was there a gateway wine that you remember? Yeah, I think, um, well for me, that first trip I took to, um, to Burgundy and all I knew that the wines were expensive and at the time, you know, I think the, the wines were a lot less expensive than they are now, but I, you know, I, this is the, best place in the world to get wine. That's what I'd read on the train going to, to Bone. And um, we went to one of the little villages and uh, there was some wine in a steel tank and we tasted with this vigneron, very respected vigneron, but he was in boots, kind of uh, splattered with grape must and in a t-shirt and he poured wine out of that. And, and I, can still, I can still remember 
that, you know, kind of the wine, how it smelled like the cellar that it was in where we were visiting and, and even felt like the connection to the vineyards that we'd visited from the same producer on this little tour that we'd taken. So I think that wine still stands out because it was such a humble experience. This tank in sort of a musty basement is where they, you know, was part of the process of making these wines. So, uh, you know, that's, you know, we interviewed a lot of people about Epiphany wines, but that was certainly the experience. And it was probably as much at the place and, and the person who is still in Burgundy and he's still making wine. And, and, and I was there last winter and drove by um, uh, the, the domain and um, it hasn't changed in, since the 1400s. So, so it's pretty, pretty cool. Did you find that was pretty common when you're talking about epiphany wines? Did a lot of people remember the experience maybe more than the wine? Yep, and it's, I think everybody has a story. Some people, um, uh, more, more so than others, but everybody remembers, if not the wine, they remember a wine that really floored them or that stayed with them or that had layers. And a lot of times it's the place and the people, but uh, other people, it was just a single bottle, you know, um, that floored them. So everybody, that's a good starting point for a conversation with somebody who loves wine. What's the best top five wines you've ever had and what were the circumstances around them? And, and people can always find it, even when they're skeptics. Like, I don't believe, you know, there are some people, I don't believe in the epiphany wine. Uh, but then they'll go on to tell you a story about some amazing wine experience they had. So uh, it, it's sort of a common, it's, it, you know, um, when my mom was visiting one time and when I was editing the film and I showed her a little sequence and I think it was that epiphany wine sequence and she's like, it's almost like a cult or a religion. And it, I think that experience is, or sort of common factors, it's like this organic religion and wine lovers. <laughs> organic religion, oh, I like that. <laughs> um, do you have a, a narrative philosophy or a storytelling philosophy? Uh, let's see. I. I think, um, I don't know, without getting too technical, but I mean, it's the old classic. I really believe in that format, it's particularly for, for documentary films and for anything that's a, a visual presentation. Um, and and it, I think it also applies to, um, to novels to a certain extent too, or, or longer narrative things. But... Um, you know, this three-part format, you know, the fairy tales, the beginning, the middle, and the end, the three little bears, the uh, religions, three wise men, and the trinity, and, and um, I think that storytelling format is b baked into the human experience. And so um, the Greek um, playwrights and Greek drama had, had this structure, you know, this three-part structure, and rising action, falling action, and... and uh, and I think that holds true, um, and it's always a good starting point. It's not saying that that structure has to be, um, uh, everything needs to follow that structure, but it's a great starting point, and there's no reason not to follow that. And I think it's been around in the human experience long enough that it's sort of a, we've been naturally selected to experience that format. I, I think that, you know, in the hours between, you know, when we were, hunter-gatherers, you know, when the campfire was dying and we've eaten and, 
you know, before we go to sleep and that hour and a half to two hour window, I think that's the, the length of drama. You know, that's when you tell stories and, um, and, and I think films today, you know, I think that's, that's the format, you know, that, that two hour, I, I think the, it's the great literature of, of our time. Film is just a continuation of that. It's plugged into a human uh, storytelling format. So I think that 90 minutes and three-part structure mm -hmm. is, um, is a great pl place to start for any story in, on the video or film side. And um, I think it'll be around for a long time despite cell phones and 30-second videos and YouTube and all of that. And, and this is the golden age of television and all of that stuff. I, I still think, in, I, I don't want to be a film snob, but I think that's just the superior format, or not the superior format, but it's the more human storytelling format, that longer format uh, of a complete story. So, so you've got, um, you've already got your next couple projects lined up and you're thinking about, is there a dream story out there for you? Is there a, a, a wine story that you just can't wait to tell? I really, yeah, I, I've got something, and I, I, it started off as a, a documentary that didn't quite come together, um, and I thought it could be a, a, a nonfiction book, but I really think it would be exciting to explore um, the the oldest vineyards in the in the country and the and the explore the wine industry from there, and we have some old ones here in Oregon and Washington, um, as old as any. Uh, and, and I think an interesting thing is that if you look at all of the oldest vineyards and the oldest wine regions, Missouri had a flourishing wine region in the 1850s um, because so many people came from the Rhineland. And there are still, you can go into the woods in Missouri and find an ancient Riesling vine that was planted there, you know, long before there was established regions in California and, and other places where we have it today. And um, everybody who planted those vineyards were immigrants. And um, I think it's an interesting now that everybody, um, you know, who labors at the lowest level of the industry are immigrants. And in some ways they have, you know, same dreams, same ambitions, but not the same opportunities to, you know, plant a vineyard. But I think it would be an interesting thing to look at immigration and the concept of immigration and over time and explore some of the stories of people today moving into the wine industry or coming in as immigrants, both at the, you know, the daughter of a you know Bordeaux winemaker being sent to Napa to learn the industry and learn the latest techniques, and then also you know migrant laborers coming in with ambitions and and hopes to just maybe not be involved in wine, but just you know have better opportunity to further family. So I think there's a story there to explore of immigration's impact on the wine industry in America throughout its history. So that would be the, the story I'd tackle, but. Um, it's, it seems like a pretty, pretty big and daunting story. So maybe, maybe it'll happen at some point. That'd be awesome. I'd be, I'd be interested in seeing that. Um, last question I have for you. Um, we've never really had the chance to interview someone uh, who has used our archive before. Mm -hmm. So if you wouldn't mind, just give us an idea of uh, what the experience was like using the archive and um, usefulness, impressions, things like that. Yeah, I, um, th that's. Part of my favorite part of the process, especially when it's so easy, you know, like um, the access and the collection of materials and and everything, you know, 
to go there and find like a treasure trove of things um, to be able to use in a project is it's super exciting. And um, I remember we interviewed Dick Erath um, and had about a couple hours of footage. And he talked about the first wine that he ever made. And he said um, something like, I think it was, it might have been a Semillon in 1956 or something like that. I can't quite remember. Then we went to the archives and there is his notes from 1956 or 58 of the Semillon that he made. The first wine that he made is there in the archives. So he talked about it. He kind of remembered it. And, you know, then you can go and find that actual document and put that on screen, you know, in time with the, with the interview. I mean, for, so, you know, that was sort of an a, amazing thing that can only happen, you know, if a place like that exists. So, so that's, that's like terrifically exciting to be able to, you know, it, it, it's like a treasure for anybody who does that type of work um, and an invaluable resource. Excellent. Thank you. So, um, yeah. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything else I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to mention while we have you here? Um, I, don't know. I think that that covers a lot of it. So, Thanks. really appreciate it. It's yeah. uh, amazing to be able to kind of come full, full circle and <laughs> be on the other other side of the camera rather than uh, I prefer the I prefer that side of things. So, uh, I mean, but it's over here. also. Uh, uh, honored to be able to contribute something to a great resource for the state and for the entire industry. Well, thank you. We really appreciate that. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.